advertising campaign. So, so check out this ad from 1973. Heinz ketchup. Think how good it's going to taste when it finally gets there. Tasting Heinz ketchup. It's slow good. <laughs> That's what I lived with in 1973. I did not learn uh, until years later when I heard the whole song on oldies radio at that time, then that the song was actually about a, a romantic relationship and not ketchup. Um, <laughs> and, and the first. Uh, first line of that song makes sense when you hear it in that context. It says, we can never know about the days to come, but we think about them anyway. And, and she's saying that you, you never know what's going to happen in the future, uh, even though you, you know, you, we, we like to think about the future. We like to ponder it. We like to wonder about what might be happening. But the truth is, nobody knows what's going to happen. And so you just have to wait for it. And of course, the anticipation comes in that fact that you do have to wait to see what's going to happen. Well, like so many other uh, bits of uh, wisdom from the world, there's some truth in that, but I don't think it's the whole story. I mean, let me ask you a question. Do we really have no idea what's going to happen in the future? And we shared uh, in communion this morning, and we're going to look at that text. So grab your Bible, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It's a very familiar passage because we share it and repeat it each time we have communion together. So follow along with me as I read it out loud it says and when he had given thanks or when he had, yeah let's start at the beginning here verse 23 for i received from the lord that which i also delivered to you that the lord jesus on the night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me and in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father God, we thank you for these words. God, this is not just a formal liturgy. It is your truth, your truth given to us and for us. And so, God, we pray that this morning we could be encouraged, built up, and strengthened in it. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So rituals uh, or traditions, you know, they, they can be both good and bad, you know. And our family, like uh, I'm sure most other families, have certain rituals, uh, tried and true traditions that are part of your Christmas celebration. And some of them are just for fun and others maybe have a, a deeper significance or, or meaning. Uh, for us, like uh, the night in, in which we decorate the tree, we have always had uh, crepes and thick-cut uh, peppered bacon. It's just a traditional meal we get to do right before we decorate the trees. And man, our boys would always look forward to it because it's the only time of year 
DJ ever made crepes. And if you get those hot crepes off the griddle, you spread melted butter across them, pour powdered sugar liberally over the top of that, and then take fresh squeezed lemon and spritz that so you get that sweet tart flavor. Mm -mm, mm -mm, man, they are good. And uh, so we would do that every year, and the boys, the boys would love that. Just a, a fun family tradition. But we have another ritual, and it started as near as any of us can tell back with my grandfather's father. And every Christmas Eve, as we gather around the Christmas tree to open the gifts from one another, before any gift was opened, he, and then later my grandfather, and then my father, would take the Bible and open up to Luke chapter 2. And we would read the story of the birth of Jesus Christ. And it was a reminder before we opened a single gift that the reason we give gifts and that the very greatest gift ever given was when God sent Jesus Christ as His gift to us. Our gift giving is a reflection of His giving heart. And that's a tradition that I've carried on in my own family and I hope and pray that my boys will keep going for the next generation. So those, those rituals like those, uh, both the for fun ones and the more serious ones, uh, they're good. They, they help build family cohesiveness and, and in a way they define what it means to be that family. This is, we, we do this because this is what the Crossmans do. Rituals can be a powerful element in, in holding us together as a family. And of course, Jesus knew the power of ritual, of tradition. I mean, God himself set up many ritual traditions for the, the people of Israel to observe in order to remind them of what it means to be his children, his family, to be a Jew. And it was in the midst of one of those traditions, the Passover, that Jesus instituted something brand new for his followers. He took the bread and the wine that was used at every Passover meal and attached a brand new meaning and significance to it. And think about that. Think, think about how hard it is to uh, change um, traditions in our lives, right? I mean, we're people who generally, we don't like change. We get something going, and, and we like to do it the same way uh, all the time. How many of you sit in pretty much the same seat every time you come to church here? It's tough to say. I remember one Sunday when I was a young pastor and I made everybody stand up and switch sides of the church. And it was hard, but I wanted to show them how hard it is to change traditions. And some people afterwards grumbled and said, man, that was tough. It was hard for me to sit on the other side of the church. We, uh, we have traditions and as they get started, they're hard to change, even simple ones like that. When DJ and I got married, actually even the year before we were married, uh, we started a tradition of going out in the woods, right, to find the perfect Christmas tree. Uh, oftentimes the perfect Christmas tree looked off a lot like Charlie Brown's tree, but it, it, was, it was perfect to us. And, and as the boys got older, again, 
uh, even as babies, they packed out with us. But when they were older and could walk around, this was one they would really look forward to because DJ would make homemade hot chocolate and put it in a thermos and then Chex Mix and, and some other snacks. And then we'd get all bundled up in the gear and go out in the woods and tromp around, letting them help pick out the favorite tree and finding that thing till we would get it and, and cut it down and bring it home. And it was just a great family tradition. And we did that every single year until the year that Daniel was diagnosed with leukemia. Because the doctor told us that under no conditions could we have a live tree in the house with Daniel in that condition. There was some problems with his compromised immune system. And you know, it just was hard and it wasn't the same to go get an artificial tree, right? And, and, and you know, I thought about, you know, uh, I'm just going to take Isaiah and, and Zachary and bundle them up in their winter clothes and their boots, you know, and give them a thermos of hot chocolate and a Ziploc baggie of Chex Mix and we'll go tromping around Walmart until we find the right tree. Uh, but no, um, it was a, a tradition that just went by the wayside. And it's, it's, you know, it's hard to change, but we all understood that we had to do it. And think about that. The longer and more significant a tradition is, the harder it would be to change. So think about the disciples who were sitting down to that Passover meal. And this was a ritual that the Jews had been doing for over 1,400 years. Ever since Moses led them out of Egyptian captivity, it was done the same way in every household, every year, year after year after year. And it had incredibly deep significance to them. It defined what it meant to be a Jew. Each element reminded them of, of God's miraculous provision and salvation for them. And now Jesus totally changed everything. There was no warning. There was no debate about it. He just did it. The bread called the matzah was the bread of haste. And this was bread that was made with no leaven, right? When you leaven dough, it takes a long time to make bread. You have to sit around, let it rise for hours before you can uh, bake it and, and, and have it ready, but not so with matzah. I mean, you just whip it up, stick it in the oven, and out comes this loaf of bread, which we would call a great big cracker. It's just this big flat loaf of bread called matzah, and it's ready to go. And the purpose of the unleavened bread was to show them the haste that would be needed when God brought about His redemption. It represented the freedom that they would experience in just a moment's time from the tyranny of slavery in Egypt. And Jesus took this bread, and maybe you've wondered how this works, this bread, and gave it a whole new meaning in verse 24. And when He had given thanks, He broke it. And said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, Jesus wasn't saying that somehow this uh, bread uh, magically, literally became his body uh, any more than he meant that he literally, you know, became a slab of wood with hinges on it when he said, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door. Uh, of the shepherd. The bread is a physical metaphor that represents his body. So what did Jesus mean when he said that this is my body, which is 
for you. It's, it, it's for us. What do you mean when he says for us? Well, well, basically, that was his way of saying that everything he was and everything he did was for our benefit. Jesus left the glory and the perfection of heaven to become a man for us. He lived with all the limitations and hardships that we typically endure for us. He preached and taught the gospel truth for us. He willingly suffered humiliation in his arrest and an untold physical pain being beaten, whipped, tortured, and then crucified for us. He died taking the penalty of sin for us. That's what he meant when he took that bread and broke it and said, this is my body for you. And every time we take the bread, we're to remember all of that. And then we come to verse 25. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. There were four cups that were used during the Passover meal. And the third cup was the cup that was done after the main course of the meal. That's the one that Jesus took and transformed. In the Passover meal, that was called the cup of redemption or the cup of salvation. If you remember the Passover story, you, you know that Moses uh, was sent to Egypt to free the children of Israel, and, and you recall that God had sent nine different plagues uh, in order to convince Pharaoh to let the people go, but Pharaoh's heart was hardened. There was no way he was going to give up his slaves and get rid of all that free labor. And so then God said, I will send one more, the tenth and final plague, and this one will change Pharaoh's heart because this was an awful plague. God would slay the firstborn child of every single household. But he gave away for people, the Jewish people, the slaves to be protected and saved from this plague. They would need to sacrifice a lamb and then take some of the blood from that lamb and smeared across the doorposts of their homes. And in so doing, when the angel of death would come by, it would see the blood over the doorposts and pass over that house, leaving everyone in there alive. And during that Passover meal, that third cup represented that lamb's blood that was used to bring salvation to those homes. And now Jesus is saying that from this point forward, this cup would represent the blood of the Lamb of God, His own blood that brought us salvation from the death penalty of sin. And just like that, 1,400 years of tradition was changed. No longer would the bread and cup remind them of of their escape from slavery in Egypt. It was no longer about the exodus uh, from captivity and the journey to the promised land. Now, when you would do the, the bread and the cup, it was about the cross and the Savior of the world. 
Now, there's two important phrases that I want to focus on as we draw to a close today. And the first is that repeated phrase, do this in remembrance of me. See, Jesus said at the beginning uh, or throughout this that he had a purpose in changing this tradition. It was to remember him. And I said at the beginning that uh, traditions can be either good or bad. And they are good when they accomplish what they're supposed to, but they're bad when they simply become ritualistic activities that are just done by rote without thinking about what they mean or, or why we're doing them. And the problem is that's something that can very easily happen when we do something over and over and over again, right? I mean, have you ever, have you ever watched an accomplished knitter? I mean, I have seen these ladies and, and, and these needles are clacking at a high rate of speed and, and they don't even look at their hands. They can be watching TV, carrying on a conversation uh, and their hands just do what they're supposed to do because they've done it so many times. They can do it without thinking about the process at all. Their mind can be somewhere else completely. And that's good, wouldn't it? comes to, you know, knitting an afghan. That's bad when it comes to communion. We can become so used to the ritual of communion that we don't even think about what it means. Our hands can go through the motions without ever once considering what they're doing or why. And to combat that very real possibility, Jesus repeated that command. Do this in remembrance of me. Every time we take communion, our minds are to be drawn back to what Jesus did for us, and very specifically, that final act of sacrifice on the cross. As verse 26 says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. That's what he wants us to remember. That's what he wants us to think about. You know, our communion is very neat and tidy, right? We have these bright, shiny uh, uh, serving plates all washed and cleansed by Debbie Napholtz every time we, we use them. And, you know, that's really nice, isn't it? Well, we appreciate that. But when we take the bread and hold that cup in our hand, it should bring to mind a very gruesome event. The body of Jesus beaten and battered nearly beyond recognition. His blood freely flowing from deep wounds coating the cross and the ground beneath Him. And all of that was done so that your sins, my sins, could be forgiven. So when we take communion, it can't just be a simple ritual that we do without thinking. We have to do it remembering what Jesus Christ has done for us. But there's one more phrase I want to look at. And this is how the communion liturgy, at least as it's given in the Bible, ends. 
Because I didn't finish quoting verse 26 there, right? There are three more words at the end of that verse. It says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. See, communion is not just about looking back. It's also supposed to be done in anticipation. Anticipation about a future that we know is going to happen because Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead and therefore he is coming back. I mean, that's what Jesus promised his disciples just before his arrest and crucifixion in John 14. Jesus said, in my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also you think about the way a child looks forward to and anticipates Christmas Day. That's the anticipation that God wants us to have about the return of Jesus Christ. So Jesus told us about that future event so that we would know it and eagerly wait and anticipate it. And, and I have a simple question. Why did he do that? I mean, it could have been like uh, so many other things in the future, right? Where you just have to wait until it happens to know what's going to happen in the future. He could have just surprised us. Hey, I'm back. Here I am. Surprised. But you guys didn't know I was doing that. You know, he could have done that. Why did he tell us? Well, obviously, there would be multiple reasons, multitude of reasons why he told us. But I, I think one very big one is what it does to help us live life in this broken world. I mean, let's, let's face it. Things can get pretty ugly down here and, and very hard. Sin wreaks havoc in our lives. Not only our own sin and the consequences that can bring, but the sin of other people that can so negatively impact us and affect us. And then you add on top of that the, the fact that Jesus said that we will suffer persecution simply because we've made that choice to follow Him and the world's going to push back and fight against that. And, and it can get really hard down here and really tough. But knowing what lays ahead can make all the difference. I mean, e even Jesus use that. Look at, look at how it affected him in Romans 12 too. It says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. See, the brutality and the torture of the cross is what Jesus had to face. But he says that he could do that. Why? Because he knew what? the joy set before him. He knew what was coming, and as a result, he was able to endure. So Jesus wanted us to know the joy that set before us. See, if your vision and your perspective is just this life and this life alone, well, it's not all joyful. 
Now, now I admit, God does give us very many blessings and so many things to be uh, thankful for and, and happy times and days, but many times this life is a, a struggle and a heartache. How do we face those things? We can because of the joy set before us. We know what the future holds. Oh, yeah, not all the little details. We don't know that, but we know what the future holds. And so we know that, the, that this pain and calamity and heartache and tribulation and every other hardship that we might be facing or yet to face in this life is temporary. Our eternal future is joy. Pure joy in a place that Jesus Christ has prepared for us. A, a place where sin and all of its horrible consequences will be no more. It will no longer exist. A, a place where pain and hurt and, and tears and fears, they, they won't even be a distant memory. They will simply be no more. It is a place where every longing of the heart and every righteous fulfillment that we could desire is given to us in full. Whenever we take communion, it's not only to look back at what Jesus has done. It is to look forward with great anticipation to what He will yet do. The promise that He will return for us. That where He is, we may be also. And that makes everything able to be endured. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the truth that we celebrate in communion. And every time we share in the bread and the cup, we remember the awful pain and suffering that Jesus went through to bring us freedom, forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. But at the same time, God, we think about the joy that is set before us. The joy of that reunion and relationship with Jesus Christ. The eternal state of, of freedom from the very presence of sin and its power. And in that, God, we are strengthened to live day by day. So thank you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.